We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Work, family, friends, a million pressing social issues and an expectation to be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for an ice cold Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Listen, there's a lot going on in Green Bay right now, and I feel like we could all use a moment to chill with a Coors Light. See, Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Perfect for a moment to unwind. Coors Light is what I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in their all-new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Twenty minutes a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. This is the Pack a Day Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode 775 of the Pack-A-Day podcast. I'm your host, Andy Herman. You can follow me on Twitter at AndyHermanNFL. Of course, you can find my writing at PackerReport.com. And back again for today's episode is the insanely knowledgeable Ben Fennel. You can find him here every other Monday on the Pack-A-Day podcast, and you can also find him on Twitter at BenFennel underscore NFL. Ben, first of all, I know we've got a ton to get into today, but how was your weekend full of roster moves, college football, etc.? You know, it's kind of my yearly tradition to take this weekend off mentally, go out to the golf course, spend some time with the family before I really buckle down for the marathon that is the NFL and college season. Uh, so I was out on the golf course today and it's too hard to keep up with on an hour by hour basis. So I almost <laughs> just let all the dust settle. I'll catch up Sunday night, even Monday morning, because there's so much movement. There's so many comings and goings and practice squads and failed physicals and it's exhausting and it's really tough to keep up with. So my tradition this weekend is kind of stay off the grid, stay off social media. I try to peep it every now and then just because I'm a curious cat, but uh, really just looking forward to kind of assessing it all on Monday morning once it, all the dust settles. Yeah, that's, that's a really smart way to go about it. And of course, I did the exact opposite. I was, uh, you know, kind of keeping a, a keen eye and obviously all the Packer moves as well as some of the moves across the NFL. Um, I, I do think it's always fun at the end of the night. You know, I, I was obviously intently focused on the Packers stuff, but then to go in and, and just look at all 32 teams, see if there's anyone in, in the last couple drafts that I really liked that got cut and, and just things like that, uh, just to kind of, you know, go back and look at notes on some of those guys. But I think that's always an interesting thing to look back at. And then and see which players get added back to the practice squad. Um, we'll get into the, the Packers in just a moment. I, I was kind of surprised. I don't know about you, but th there wasn't anyone that was like a, a major shock to me. The, the whole Josh Rosen thing was somewhat intriguing in the fact that he just went back to or went to Tampa Bay's practice squad and is all of a sudden not on a 53 at all right now was semi-surprising to me. But outside of that, there, there wasn't anything that, that really took me by surprise other than um, – Maybe the Raiders uh, trading away uh, their third or fourth round pick, whose name is escaping me at the moment. But that was the only, like the only other surprise to me. Yeah, it sounds like Lynn Bowden Jr. Yes, out of uh, Kentucky, who has had a lot of issues with because he didn't have a true positional fit. He was a little bit of a slot receiver, a little bit of a wildcat quarterback, a little bit of a running back. 
Uh, so a lot of people don't think he was given the chance. But this 2017 draft was an interesting study, and we saw some comings and goings with movement this past week with guys like Leonard Fournette. Uh, you know, when teams are deciding to against that fifth-year option for first-round picks, it's really kind of a make or break. Do you want to hang on to them for this one last, you know, uh, departing year and pay that first-round salary or maybe give them an opportunity to go somewhere else and get that money off your book? So we saw that around the league a little bit. And just really interesting uh, – every kind of team in their landscape and how they're preparing for this season, which is very unique and uh, always the interesting kind of situations with veterans. And when you finally want to, you know, cut the rope on some of those veterans and uh, let them have their swan song, maybe with another team we've seen around the league with guys like Adrian Peterson, et cetera. So uh, nothing too shocking though, the Josh Rosen, the Fournette AP, those are probably some of the headliners. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Well, let's let's jump right over to the Packers because obviously the Packers put together their initial 53-man roster as well as their practice squad. We'll get to the practice squad in just a moment, but let's start with kind of their general roster constri- you know, construction and how they set everything up. Some surprises, I think for me, Malik Taylor was the big surprise. I, I, I was telling somebody yesterday, I think I was actually talking to, to Perry yesterday, I, I think I would have put uh, him as about the 80th or 81st guy on my list, or sorry, uh, 75th or 76th. Um, guy on my list as, as players that I, I would have expected to, to make this team and, and basically in the, in the bottom five just didn't see a ton out of him at camp it's not to say that he wasn't deserving it's not to say he didn't earn it um, obviously it's it's always tough to keep an eye on 80 guys at once and there's certainly going to be guys that you miss but that one uh, totally took me by surprise would have been the last receiver on the roster that I would have expected but kudos to him um, Brian Gutekunst had a lot of great things to say about him in his press conference today um, all the other ones uh, as far as guys that got kept, Montrevious Adams, Randy Ramsey, Kabian Ento, and Yash Nijman, at least guys who you know kind of took me slightly by surprise, all of those had an injury asterisk next to their name, which is, I think, why it kind of threw me, uh, or maybe I didn't have it in my predictions at least. Of course, Adams has the foot injury. Ramsey looked really good you know, prior to the injury, but he had been out about the last week, week and a half. KB Nento has been out the last couple weeks, and then Yash Nijman just came back from injury about three or four practices ago. So I think that's why it was a little bit tougher to predict those guys. Guys who I thought would maybe make it that didn't, Jake Kumaro, Tipa Naliai, uh, Tim Williams, Stanford Samuels, and Jake Hansen. I got to say Kumaro and Hansen were not major surprises to me. I thought both of those guys were, were coin flips. Hansen, to me, looked like a JV guy trying to play varsity football. He just looked like a guy who needed a year of strength and conditioning and technique work, and uh, the practice squad looks like it's going to be a perfect spot for him. I'm a little bit surprised they cut both Tipa and Tim Williams. I thought they'd at least cut or keep one of those guys, uh, but they were able to get Tipa back on the practice squad. We'll see what happens with Tim Williams. And then Stanford Samuels, they were able to get back as well. But uh, anything about the overall construction of the roster that took you by surprise or anything that was noteworthy? No, not a whole lot of shocks uh, other than fully absorbing the Malik Taylor, Malik Turner uh, (laughs) situation over the past couple days, which has been interesting to follow. Uh, But the main thing, and I think a lot of the major decision makings in that 13th hour with those 50th, the 53 guys on the roster is special teams. And that's just what I think of with all those back-end guys you had mentioned, whether it's Randy Ramsey, you know, Ento or Malik Taylor. These are guys that have to embrace and really – uh, you know, step up to the challenge of being core special teams players if they want to be active and members of the, you know, the 53-man roster on game days. And that's really what you get when you're the sixth corner or the fifth receiver in a room. There's are going to be a lot of games. You don't see the field on offense or on defense, and you're going to do a lot of your work on special teams. So when you're deciding between those last couple battles, whether it's a, you know, a Galea or a Tim Williams versus a Randy Ramsey, a lot of that is special teams value and where can he help us, you know, moving forward in week one, first and foremost. And I think certain guys have a little bit better pedigree to contribute in those areas than others. Yeah. And I think from an overall construction standpoint, what, how many players they kept at each position was about exactly what I was expecting. I had um, one additional edge rusher than defensive tackle, but they, they basically kept the, the positions that I was expecting them to keep. And, and you're exactly right. 
when it comes down to some of those guys at the bottom of the roster, that's what can make it tough to predict. You know, even those of us who were able to be at practice, they did not do much special teams work outside at all. Um, even when there was, there was a lot of other stuff going on, which usually, and I'll just be transparent. I, I usually like watching the other stuff that's going on more than special teams drills. I'm a little bit biased, I guess, in that regards, but I'll have to open my eyes up maybe to special teams a little bit more, but uh, it makes sense why some of those guys, especially in Ento or Ramsey, a Taylor uh, could be a, a real factor in that regards and just something that, you know, was tough to predict. Um, one of the things that you had touched base on, or we had both touched base on, and it was prior to the draft, somebody on Twitter actually brought this up and wanted us to discuss this, is uh, I think it was you who initially said that, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but uh, that the, the Packers had maybe one of the, the bottom five wide receiver groups uh, in the NFL. Uh, I think this was right after the draft, if I want to, if I'm remembering correctly. Obviously, Devin Funchess uh, doesn't work out. He's opting out for the year. Uh, they basically keep their same core of receivers. They get Equinemius St. Brown back from injury a season ago. Of course, Malik Taylor is now there on the active roster. And I, I don't think it's, it's any surprise anymore that uh, Tyler Irvin has been, uh, you know, pretty much a wide receiver and seems to kind of be making that transition. I'm sure he'll still be a gadget guy, but do you feel any better about this wide receiver group or do you kind of feel mostly the same? Well, it's not a whole lot different to feel different about um, other than just the general health and some guys moving from year three to four or two to three and just kind of assessing their development and experience. But the room is not a whole lot different right now. You could sub out Kumaro on the back end for Malik Taylor, and it pretty much is what it is around draft time. I'm excited to see St. Brown healthy and uh, potentially involved. But when you're weighing this position group and the depth against the rest of the teams in the league I still think they are in the bottom 10 bottom third as far as talent production upside depth weigh all the you know the relative factors there's a lot of talented receivers in this NFL there's a lot of teams with bona fide one two three receivers that can produce and are stars and I love Devontae Adams we could call him wide receiver one in the NFL I have no issues with that but outside of him I just have some concerns and I think that's warranted from Packers fans and, and outside uh, just having guys that are inconsistent, inexperienced, lacking that true upside and that ceiling to be young prospects in the NFL. You know, I really think they're in the conversation with other teams like Jacksonville and Washington and the Jets teams that kind of have lesser talent on the outside right now. However, I think that's okay. Because I think Matt LaFleur is actually going to lean less on that receiver group as we move forward. And I think it's going to be much more of a running back, tight end, heavy personnel type of offense and really get out of that 11 personnel, three receivers on the field all the time era that really dominated the Packers over the last five, six years, uh, mostly under the McCarthy era. And I think that's okay. They have intriguing talent and they have better talent at other positions and other teams. So it all gets factored in. But when you have to weigh this position group with the other receiver rooms in the NFL, I have a tough time putting them anywhere in the top 20 in the NFL. I'm not sure if you uh, agree or think differently. Yeah, I do agree. I have some super cautious optimism about some of the guys on the roster, and that would be MVS, Tyler Irvin, and Alan Lazard. I think Alan Lazard uh, is basically the, the guy that we saw last year. I don't think this is a situation where, you know, Geronimo Allison had a breakout year. Is Well, breakout's probably being kind, but a nice year, and then, you know, kind of fell off the face of the earth. Or Jared Boykin had a nice year and then fell off the face of the earth. I don't think that's going to happen with Alan Lazard. I think he's going to be very much the guy that we saw towards the end of last season, and I think he can even potentially improve upon that. MVS, I think, is somebody that Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers have spoke highly of, and I was really biting my tongue for a, a few practices because I didn't want to get overly excited about a couple practices because he's kind of done this in the past where he's put together good practices, even put together good games, but he can't do it for 16 games week in and week out. And both of the last two seasons, he found himself basically on the bench by the end of the season under two different coaching staff. So uh, I, I've been hesitant to say it, but I think he's looked much more consistent. Hands have looked stronger routes have looked better especially in the short and intermediate routes and I think if he can hopefully I don't want to say master but get better in the short and intermediate game then that then corners are going to have to you know really 
you know, play those sort of plays and routes more than just his, you know, his deep speed and him going deep on every play. I think they're going to have to honor that a little bit more. And I'm hoping that then that opens up some of those deep balls to MVS a little bit more because they have, he just has more in his, his, his toolbox that he has to work with. And hopefully that makes corners stay more honest in that regards. And then, you know, we, we've talked Ben about, and, and you've, uh, you know, mentioned on Twitter multiple times about how, you know, you've wanted your green Bay to get one of these slot gadget type receivers who can, you know, do a little bit more, maybe a little bit more of the Randall Cobb stuff. And just a lot of the stuff that we've seen around the leagues with the jet sweeps, the sweeps, the orbits, um, and, just being more of a slot factor as well. And I got to say what I've seen out of Tyler Irvin is, is, has me really excited about how they can use him. And I just think he looks like a much better route runner than he did a season ago. Last year when Green Bay put him in the slot, it was basically like a running back in the slot and not like a Christian McCaffrey, just like a running back in the slot. Now he looks like he's legitimately uh, worked on his, his routes enough where corners and, and defensive backs or defensive players in general are going to have to honor him as a receiver a little bit more, which I think makes him more dangerous. Yeah, and when you look at the collective group, the five receivers, and for all you know, intents and purposes, let's put Tyler Irvin in that category. Outside of Devontae Adams, though, who are you preparing for on a Monday to Saturday game plan of an opposing team? Who are you afraid of getting run past? Who are you afraid to have to tackle in space? And that's what I look at this team and just think, there's some good players. Alan Lazard, good player. St. Brown, really interesting skill set. Good special teams player. He could do some duties like a big slot or a H-back tight end. Valdez Scantling is long, above the rim, has some speed. But I'm not afraid of any of these guys. And that was one of the things I wanted uh, in the offseason was a threatening presence. Somebody that captures defensive coordinators' minds in the middle of the week that safeties are alerting pre-snap because they're on the field. And I think there's good players. I'm just not afraid of any of these players. And maybe I just look around the league and there's some more explosive players or ones a little bit more dangerous with the balls in their hand that I just think that this Packers team collectively isn't as talented as some of those other groups. I love Devontae, complete receiver, you know, through and through. But the rest of the group just leaves a little bit to be desired. Good players – but when you're stacking them up against the rest of the league and what other teams have, I think they're lacking just a little bit, in my opinion. 100% fair. And I think you bring up a great point that you defensive coordinators are going to talk about Rodgers, you know, maybe a little on Aaron Jones, and then a lot about Devontae Adams. And that's probably it. You know, they're going to go over scheme, what Green Bay plans to do, but they're not going to spend a ton of time on an Alan Lazard. Maybe uh, a couple whispers about MVS and being able to kind of get deep. And, and that's probably it. I, I don't think there's anyone at the tight end group that's super scary. I don't think they're game planning for Jamal Williams or A.J. Dillon at this point. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that brings up a great point. Um, you want players that are going to have to make you keep defensive coordinators up at night. And, you know, besides Rodgers, Adams, and Jones, which, to be fair, is a pretty good triumvirate of play triumvirate of players but uh at the receiver position probably just Adams and you also have to weigh Aaron Rodgers makes these players so much better yeah and I think we saw that when some of those you know pillar cornerstone receivers went elsewhere especially after that heyday Super Bowl we saw James Jones in Oakland and you know Jordy elsewhere and you know uh, Greg Jennings trying to you know revitalize his career elsewhere he makes the receiving core better around him because Aaron Rodgers is so good so that also has to get weighed into it. We've seen flashes out of Geronimo Allison and Kumaro. Those are just guys. I think they're just average bottom of the receiver type of presence. And those are the guys you have to constantly stir the bottom of the roster and get better. And sometimes it's at the expense of some tough decisions and maybe some fan favorites. Yeah, I think that's a very astute point, and I think you're 100% spot on. Let's jump over to the practice squad. Green Bay did announce 14 players to their practice squad today, including Chris Barnes, Reggie Begleton, Henry Black, Demarie Crockett, Tipa Naliai, Jake Hansen, Zach Johnson, Alex Light, John Lovett, Willington Prevalon, Greg Roberts, Stanford Samuels, Delonte Scott, and Darius Shepard. Dexter Williams has also been rumored to be coming back to the practice squad at some point this week. And then they also have two other names from the outside, Robert Foster, the former Buffalo Bill, as well as Dejan Scuda Harris, who I know you uh, tweeted a little bit out about today. Uh, why don't you first of all tell us a little bit about Dejan Scuda Harris and then maybe a couple names on the practice squad that you're keeping an eye on. 
So, Dijon Harris out of Arkansas, he's a squatty, thumping, run-plugging linebacker. He's under six feet, about 240 pounds, 245 pounds. He really looks like a fullback and that squatty kind of bubble butt presence. Uh, can come downhill and really pack a punch in a short area burst. Can really cover some good ground from alley to alley as well. He would just go uh, backwards in some zone drops, really didn't, uh, wasn't asked to do much in coverage. I like my linebackers to be a little bit longer in today's NFL, but we've seen productive guys out of this size, whether it was Curtis Lofton or who I compared him to, Stephen Tolick. Both those guys were in the 245 range and under six foot. Uh, really more of early down run pluggers for today's NFL, if I had to guess, Andy. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. It's I wonder – do you think there's any chance you mentioned kind of looks like a fullback green Bay's moved some linebackers to fullback in the past. And, and Matt LaFleur has kind of has a thing for fullback. Is that something that could be an option or is he a, a true linebacker? I wouldn't put it out of the equation, especially a young guy like this. And you have to be willing and multiple, especially once you get to the practice squad. But I think he's going to really represent the Antonio Morrison or the BJ Goodson type of presence in the offense that when you need that heavier personnel on defense, that more run plugging linebacker, that's pretty linear and that's just going one direction. And typically that's downhill. That's his type of, of style of linebacking play. And there is a place for that in pet and scheme as we've seen over the past couple of years. Now we haven't had a chance to talk about any of the, you know, undrafted guys, at least as far as I can remember. Uh, a lot of the undrafted guys end up on the practice squad. No undrafted players made the actual roster. Uh, Stanford Samuels and Tipa, I thought both had really nice camps as well as Willington Prevalon. Were there any of these guys that stood out to you when you were kind of watching draft tape originally? I would just say Stanford Samuels. Can't remember exactly what I said about him. I'm just going to pull up my notes here really fast, if you don't mind. Yeah, take your time. But I think he was the one that definitely caught my eye. He was so long-limbed. He had the ball skills, had the pedigree, obviously, with his dad being in the league before. But being a shade under 6'2 and 185 and getting his hands on all those balls down at Florida State with eight picks, 16 PBUs, you could see the pedigree. But he was just a little raw, didn't have that long speed despite being that long limb and kind of high cut corner you would think he has that speed but he really didn't uh but he's more pesky with those long arms and reminded me a little bit of Cameron Dantzler who's now with the Minnesota Vikings at a Mississippi State kind of the poor man's version of that but you're really getting him just for his length and his ball skills could end up being more of a back-end safety uh, if his development kind of leans that way but out of the undrafted group he was definitely the one that caught my eye yeah, he, was, he looks good in camp. I thought he was going to make the 53, but he sticks on the practice squad. We'll see if Green Bay makes any other adjustments there. If those three names, including Dexter Williams, Robert Foster, and Dejon Harris end up on the practice squad, they'll have to release one person who is on it right now. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. But Green Bay, at least for the, the time being, sets that 14-person practice squad. This would probably be a good time to transition to the Vikings' new defensive backs, including Cam Dantzler, but we're going to go into that a little bit later. I do want to get into, and we kind of touched base on this a little bit later, or a little bit earlier, excuse me, about some of the changes in offense in year two, what we kind of expected with Matt LaFleur. You mentioned you know, with kind of the lack of, of top end receiving depth outside of Devonte Adams that, you know, you think you're going to see, or we're going to see, uh, you know, more running backs, more, you know, uh, more physical sets and things like that. Well, what do you overall see out of this Packers offense in year two? Well, I think there needs to be a general intent and a philosophical intent to making Aaron Rodgers life easier. And that means taking some pressure off of him and what he's being asked to do at that quarterback position and use some of these weapons around him in an easier fashion. Like we saw him dump the ball off to Aaron Jones against the Chiefs for a four-yard pass, and he takes it 60 yards of the house. I think we're going to see more yards after catch chances, put defenses in more pre-snap predicaments on making them wrong and kind of that, that RPO model of picking on a defender's leverage and hand it off if he's wide and throw the bubble if he's, you know, cheating inside. And I just think there's going to be more of those kind of split second decisions, get the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands. He can still be an elite distributor. He can be an elite all pro type of point guard in this NFL, but we need to rely a little bit more on those weapons around him, whether it's Aaron Jones, Devontae Adams, Tyler Irvin, or maybe seeing what some of these young guys uh, can do, like Jay Sternberger or the rookie Josiah DeGuara. I think there should be more intent in getting the tight ends involved in the offense as well. 
We saw some really creative stuff out of Dan Vitale last year, Aaron Jones involved in the pass game. I think we're going to see even more of that, but involving more of the tight ends and the halfbacks uh, or the H-back roles like DeGuar is going to play this year and taking more of the pressure off the depth of the receiver room, like I had mentioned earlier, less 11 personnel, less three receivers on the field, heavier personnel with the 12, the 13, the two-back sets, the pony sets with multiple running backs on the field, and just finding more creative ways to attack defenses through different positions. I think they started to do that last year, but didn't use the tight end group as much as I thought they could have. Obviously, we know my issues with Jimmy Graham, Mercedes Lewis really, you know, isn't the player he was, but Sternberger in year two and then getting Josiah DeGuar in the third round, it's got to be a clear intent to involve these guys in the pass game. Maybe even a little bit more Robert Tunyon, who has that receiver pedigree at Indiana State, who's now a bona fide tight end. And then the other thing is really just more scheme diversity in the run game. They run some of the fewest amount of power and gap schemes in the NFL. They're almost primarily outside zone or zone blocking, almost 97, 98% zone blocking. I just like to see a little bit more diversity, maybe work in some power schemes, some counter schemes, some whams or traps like we've seen the Niners hit against us. The Niners nearly doubled their gap runs from 2018 to 2019. So I'm really interested to see that jump from year one to year two for LaFleur if he does some self-scouting and maybe says, you know what, we need to be more balanced in our run attacks. And this is something McCarthy did every now and then. He would sprinkle in the one-back power stuff. We saw Aaron Jones take a 50-yard touchdown, I believe it was, against the Saints a couple years ago on a power play. Uh, And just for fans to understand this, outside zone – laterally stretching a defense, trying to string them out horizontally, giving that running back options to find a gap that's compromised or maybe find a defender that's out leverage. A gap scheme, you're trying to get vertical displacement on a defense. You're trying to push them off the ball. And typically these plays have designated points of entry for the running backs. There is no picking and choosing alleys. There is no zones. You're have a designated runway, and some running backs are better designed for that type of scheme, and that may be what A.J. Dillon brings to this offense, who's more of that runway running back, what we call point-of-entry backs, that you want to give them that insertion point so they don't have to stop their feet. Kind of that LeGarrette Blunt style when you're a heavier back, you want to just get them going downhill rather than stopping their feet, picking and choosing, and having to start-stop. So and there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, in year two for LaFleur, but a lot of, uh, you know, changes I'm expecting and just more uh, kind of building off of the very successful season last year. Yeah, and to your point, you know, about mixing it up a little bit more, again, for those uh, listening at home, I thought the team that did that best, like you said, was San Francisco. You want to go back and see how a team mixed it up and did it perfectly. Go back and and look at the two games against Green Bay a season ago and, and, you know, being able to mix the concepts where you're going stretch, stretch, and then, you know, doing a wham inside, uh, going a little bit more power, just being able to mix that up and keep defenses on their toes. Uh, Green Bay's defense obviously had a a big problem with that, and you would think – and I'm curious your thoughts on this, Ben. You would think the, the Packers have a very veteran offensive line. I know Elton Jenkins is only in year two, uh, but he, he seems to have a very sound mind for the position. Bakhtiari's a vet. Lindsley's a vet. Elaine Taylor's a vet. Rick Wagner, Billy Turner, even if a Lucas Patrick is in there, any of those guys that are in there, that's a pretty veteran group. You would think that any coach, you know, offensive coordinator, anybody calling the plays would have to feel pretty comfortable with that group running kind of a variety of schemes if they wanted to. Yeah, I actually think Elton Jenkins' selection almost broke the mold of the Packers the last 10 years. Typically, they're always going for that more versatile offensive lineman, the lighter feet guy, the guy who's a little quicker out of his stance, more of that pedigree for zone blocking. We used to joke uh, with my buddies, Packers offensive line for all these years never had any fat guys. They were always just in shape, lean, quick-footed, great for zone blocking, you know, with T.J. Lang. And I guess Sitton was a little squatty, and Bulaga had a little bit of a gut to him. But collectively, you know, more of an athletic group. And Elton has that kind of brute strength and power that he can get the vertical vertical displacement as well as being quick off the ball and being able to reach guys and play laterally as well. So I think 
his combination of skill sets. Obviously, David Bakhtiari could do whatever he wants. He's an all-pro left tackle. He's fine in whatever scheme he wants. And then just figuring out what that right side of the offensive line is going to look like and what the future of it is. And that is a perfect transition because that is something that I want to go into in more detail. Um, you know, we talked about it a little bit the last time that you were on. Uh, I think you called it uh, malpractice by not having a little bit more depth. And here we are a couple of weeks later, and that depth seems like it's going to take uh, or at least be very much tested potentially this week. We know Billy Turner's a little bit banged up. We know Rick Wagner's a little bit banged up. There's a chance both of those guys could be ready to go week one. There's a chance neither of them could be ready to go week one. And Green Bay is going to have to probably get creative. Um, I'm not breaking anything that I saw at practice here because I wasn't at this practice, nor do I think any of the beat writers were at practice when this happened. But there was an image out there uh, on Packers.com that very much looked like uh, Elton Jenkins was lined up at right tackle uh, in practice. It was on Packers.com. So uh, I, again, I'm not breaking anything that I saw at practice, but uh, it seems like that may be an option as well. And, and Matt LaFleur kind of mentioned that he's just trying to get his best five guys out on the field. Where do you think that uh, this offensive line could look in, in week one? And, and how do you think that that line could look left to right and specifically on the right side with that, with, with that right tackle position? Well, what else can you tell me about the photo? Was it an action picture? Was it pre-snap, two-point stance, three-point stance? How did he look out there? Yeah, great question. I have to, I'd have to go back and look at it, and I want to see if I can pull it up. But uh, Let's it was, see how much we can overanalyze a single picture. You know? Yeah, I'm, I want to – now I'm, I have to go back and yeah, see. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. You know, Elton Jenkins had five st- – or excuse me, six starts at tackle uh, in his career at Mississippi State, five at left tackle, one at right tackle in combination with a slew of starts at the guards and center positions, really lined up up and down that offensive line. So he's done it in the SEC against NFL-caliber defensive linemen. I feel like he's more than capable, but having a young player like that and having him cross train at drastically different positions, you can't help but consider the fact that his development at one of the positions is going to come at the expense of learning another position. It just is what it is. There's only so many hours in the day. Your body can only take so much. Your brain can only absorb so much. And a young guy in year two trying to perfect the left guard position that he looked really good last year, now taking some of that brain power, cross-training him on the other side, it's a great insurance policy to have. I think he always knew that was going to be an insurance policy with a guy with that type of experience and versatility coming out of Mississippi State and drafting him so high. But I just get a little weary of taking a young guy like that and asking him to do just a little bit too much. But the collective conversation with this room, and it wasn't malpractice. I like to go with roster negligence on the offensive line room. And since they've lost Brian Bulaga, they've addressed that with Rick Wagner, and essentially John Runyon in the draft. And I just think not addressing that offensive line and, you know, considering that that is the lifeblood, that is the pillar, the structure of that offense, the lifeblood, the motor oil that makes it all run. We're so enamored with the quarterback position and the future of the quarterback position. I just wonder if we could have dedicated more resources to surrounding the quarterback position. And especially in 2020 NFL, I mean, you have two losing seasons, you're on the hot seat. And one of my kind of theoretical questions of you is at, you know, projecting the future and Jordan Love and maybe taking a redshirt season, the Packers maybe don't make the playoffs next year, the year after, and he's on the hot seat in year three. Could this entire era in regime be over before they even really get to deploy their future weapons like a Jordan Love? Yeah, I think that's 100% fair to ask. And, and I think that's why, you know, when I went back to the, the Jordan Love and the A.J. Dillon and the Josiah DeGuerra and some of those selections, I, I a million percent get that, you know, you, I'm of the philosophy for the most part that you sign free agents for now, you draft for the future, and you, you kind of look ahead a little bit. But I think we've even talked about this, Ben. It's getting to the point where the college systems and the college formations and the college, uh, you know, game plans are starting to mirror the NFL a little bit more. We saw just last year what a DK Metcalf and A.J. Brown 
um, you know, some of these wide receivers, Terry McLaurin, you know, can do in year one. We've seen, you know, position and skill players come out and play immediately and have a major impact. And I'm not saying, you know, that an A.J. Dillon can't necessarily, you know, come in and make an impact. But, you know, overall, you now have the ability to go out and find some guys. Look at Alton Jenkins from a season ago in round two. He can come in and help you right away. It's, it's not as rare as it used to be where some of these guys need two, three, four years. Some of them do. And, and that may be the case with a guy like Rashawn Gary or maybe a Jordan Love. But it, it was a really interesting philosophy that the, the guys that they ultimately went with early in the, in the draft this year don't seem to help the window of guys like Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams, you know, Aaron Jones, David Bakhtiari, kind of the, the core of your team, what you would consider the core of your team. Um, and then when those guys window, you know, theoretically opens up, some of the other key guys are going to be either in the twilight of the career or no longer on the team. So it, it's just a really interesting dynamic. I love the overall structure of, of building for the future and kind of looking down the road when you're drafting, but man, it, it can be a really uh, tough stretch. I know that Brian Gutekunst is in a really nice position where this is a franchise that's going to give you a little bit more time, a little bit more leeway. Um, Matt LaFleur and him obviously had a really nice season a season ago going to the NFC championship. That certainly helps buy you some time, but overall the, the, the timelines where they're at with their current talent, maybe kind of some of them coming to the end of their timeline and the new talent, maybe needing two to three years down the road. It's just a, it's a really interesting philosophy and I'm really going to be intrigued to see how it plays out. And if it can, if it can help either of those timelines. Well, especially with a young coach, second year head coach, a young GM, it was essentially in his third or fourth year, whatever you want to call it on paper. There's a reason why GMs don't plan for three, four years in the future because <laughs> they might not be there in the future especially now in today's 2020, we've seen head coaches get fired after one year, which I think is just crazy to get rid of a coach from one year. It's blanking right now who was down in Arizona before Cliff or Steve Wilkes or somebody, yep. uh, but to fire some of those guys after a year, is just crazy. But you have to think of what would be the circumstances to move on from an Aaron Rodgers to a Jordan Love. That means Aaron Rodgers is probably struggling, right? Which probably means you're not winning games which usually will mean you need to change the quarterback. And typically that comes with a coaching staff change as well. You know, and this is everybody wants to point to the Rodgers draft in 2005. Well, they went four and 12, finished last in the division, and Mike Sherman got fired. So, you know, he took Aaron Rodgers and they never got to see him after that first year. So, you know, there comes with a bit of a, uh, well, how do you get to that second quarterback? Usually there needs to come with a little bit of negativity and kind of losing that comes with it. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's going to be the, the, the interesting transition point as time goes on, you know, I'll say this uh, after watching, and I know it, it doesn't mean a ton with no rookie, you know, mini camps, no OTAs, no mini camps, et cetera. Uh, but Jordan Love has a ways to go. I can definitely say that. And I think if he's, uh, he's not ready to play this year, I'd be surprised even just where he's at right now, if he's ready to play next year. So this is going to be Aaron's team for this year and next year, it would seem. Uh, and then, you know, maybe down the line, we can look at that transition. But just based on what he looked like in practice, it seems like that transition is going to be uh, maybe later rather than sooner. Well, what do you think about other teams? You know, a 49ers that beat us in the championship game, you know, lost in the Super Bowl. And they seem to be doubling down to make another run, taking a receiver in the first round, being aggressive to go get Trent Williams, you know, for the twilight of his career, that veteran presence. What is the collective view of the intent of the Packers in kind of preparing for the future while these, all these other teams are reloading for a right now type of run? Yeah, I mean, look at the Saints. I mean, they were doing everything in their power uh, to go out and get Jadavian Clowney. They've made numerous transactions. They basically traded away. I'd have to go back and look at it, but like their fourth, fifth, sixth round picks, they traded back in the seventh. Um, but that, you know, that was nothing. Um, but they, they've done everything in their power to go all in in the last couple of years of, of Drew Brees' career. My, my feeling, Ben, is their general philosophy is to try to get into the playoffs every year and have a puncher's chance because once the playoffs start, it's anyone's game. If you get hot, you can win three or four games. I think they, they saw what could happen when they beat the Steelers in the Super Bowl in 2010. And I think their general philosophy is trying to get to the playoffs every year, never mortgaging the future for now. And hopefully that, you know, the, the pieces line up together and it, it all works out. I'm not sure I agree with that philosophy. Um, I, I, I kind of, in a way like the, 
um, you know, going back to the Arizona Diamondbacks or the Miami Marlins, where they're all in, they're going to do everything to open up a window for two to three years. Um, you see more and more football teams doing that as well. Um, and then, you know, if you have to sell off and, and be bad for a couple of years, get a few top five, top 10 picks to really stack your roster and then make another run and open another window. I kind of like that a little bit more. I know nobody likes losing seasons, but man, I, it's really tough. It's really, really tough if you don't have a designated plan to open up a significant window to be the best team. It's not difficult if you have this long-term plan. Uh, it's still difficult, but not as difficult to be a really good team or maybe be a 9-7, and 10-6 and six team every year that gets in the playoffs. But it's really tough with that philosophy to be the best team. Yeah, and I just think there's too many scenarios with the Packers that you remove this one player, and I think their season's done. And I just think that losing a player and injuries are not an excuse to not be competitive. And I love relying on that Eagle season a couple years ago where they were missing everybody from left tackle to quarterback and X, Y, and Z. It's not an excuse. And I know it's so easy to look at a star player and say, what happens if you take him away? Listen, nobody's in good shape when you take away a star player. But I think the Packers in particular – are in dire situations when you take away certain particular players that I just, it's too easy to speculate and to put in that scenario because you know, depth is going to be tested. We've seen it tested at those key positions, whether it's quarterback or left tackle in the last three years. So it's a very, you know, real thought and real fear to have, but they've done nothing to give you confidence that, you know what, if he goes down, they're good because they bolstered it with a veteran presence or they have this insurance policy to kind of stay the course. And I just think other teams are preparing better depth wise than the green Bay Packers. Yeah. I don't want to pile on, but if you kind of look at their off season as a whole, whether it be a free agency or the, the draft, they didn't really sign any insurance policy. So Rick Wagner was basically a stopgap at right tackle. I think kind of the expectation was that he was probably going to be the starter at right tackle. I'm not sure that that's the case anymore, but I think he was more of a stopgap starter at right tackle. Christian Kirksey stopgap at middle linebacker. Devin Funches, maybe some, um, you know, maybe some insurance for the, the EQs and, and the uh, Alan Lazards or at least a similar type of player. But then you look at the draft, Jordan Love's not even going to be the backup quarterback. You know, A.J. Dillon's going to be the third running back. It's not like you're building in a ton of, um, you know, insurance with, the, with that draft pick. You know, Josiah DeGuerra isn't necessarily giving you any insurance anywhere. So, And they made yeah. a run at some guys. You know, they tried yeah. for Emmanuel Sanders and things like that that didn't work out. So, you know, we'll give them credit in free agency, you know, picking up the phone. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the other players, you know, decision on whether to come or not. Um, so they have made some strides, but obviously haven't landed those guys uh, like we had hoped. No, and, and this is definitely a team that focuses on developing their own. And I think that's, if Green Bay makes a significant jump, it's going to be because guys like MVS, Rashawn Gary, Alan Lazard, you know, even to an extent, Elton Jenkins, Kevin King, Raven Green, you know, Oren Burks, you know, those type of players took a major step, but Josh Jackson, a Kingsley Kiki, you know, those are the players that they're counting on to take a step. Um, but I don't know. Sometimes I think that guys are who they are. I know some guys are going to get better. Some guys will probably get worse, but for the most part, I feel like you kind of know what you have after they've played a couple years in the league. Yeah, that's probably fair. And just one note for fans this year, practice squad going from 10 players to 16 players. Six of those players can have unlimited experience, which is new. And that's why we've seen some guys in the last couple of hours, like a Josh McCown <laughs> signed with the Philadelphia Eagles at 41 years old. Interesting, uh, you know, caveat. The other is you can activate two players off the practice squad and it doesn't ruin their practice squad uh, designation. So even though Alex Light seems like he's going to slide to the practice squad, despite being a member of the roster the past two years, he can still be active on game days and will very likely will be one of those options at tackle. Yeah, especially if guys like Turner and Wagner are out, you could absolutely see him move up. Uh, same thing with a guy like Chris Burns, or uh, Burns, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, who uh, Chris Barnes, excuse me, uh, who just got released and added back to the practice squad. If Kamal Martin's out, you know, I could easily see him being active. You know, this you know this week against Minnesota as well for for some of those same reasons. So it'll be interesting to see how Green Bay utilizes, uh, especially that that latter um, option of being able to move guys up on from the practice squad onto the game day roster.
All right, we've got a big week coming up, of course. The rest of the team is going to break down the, the Packers and Vikings matchup. Ad nauseum, we'll have you uh, really geared up. We're going to break down the offense against the defense, the defense against the offense, key matchups and X factors, just like we did a season ago. Uh, but Ben, we'd be remiss not to talk about the matchup, at least in some capacity. I want to start off by talking about the, the Vikings wide receivers because their, one of their major moves this offseason was to ship out Stefan Diggs. And then, of course, uh, get uh, Jefferson in his place uh, from LSU. And uh, they also bring in Tajay Sharp. But this is a – Justin Jefferson, excuse me. This is a major change uh, in their wide receiver group. How do you think that this is going to affect the Vikings on offense? Well, it's also important to note that this team uses strictly two receivers probably more than anybody else in the NFL. It's almost always Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen. And then they love their fullback sets. They love their multiple tight end sets. Uh, but they rarely use 11 personnel, uh, which is interesting considering how much the, uh, the rest of the league uses that three-receiver set. Occasionally, we'll see some Tajay Sharp. We may see some Ola B.C. Johnson, who carved out a nice receiver three-roll. But just really quick, you know, an elevator speech on what are we going to expect different between Stefan Diggs and Justin Jefferson. Firstly, much different body types. Stefan Diggs was six feet, 190, more of that kind of scat back type of uh, body type, shorter, squattier, really rocked up core. Justin Jefferson, 6'3", 190, much longer body frame, much longer torso, longer limbs. And that comes at the expense of being able to do certain things. Stefan Diggs was much more creative and tougher with the ball in his hands, especially after the catch and as a returner. That's not something Justin Jefferson is really great at LSU. Not a lot of designed screens, not a lot of designed yards after catch opportunities. Didn't do a whole lot in the open field or the ability to break tackles for himself. Really prolific route runner, really good hands, really good adjustments on the catch point. Both of these players are very good at the catch point, especially Stefan Diggs, despite being only six feet tall. But I think it's really going to limit the Vikings offense because that was kind of an extension of the run game, giving those perimeter screens, the quick game stuff to Stefan Diggs and letting him break a tackle and go was really easy offense for the Minnesota Vikings. That really isn't what Adam Thielen does particularly well. And it's not what Justin Jefferson does particularly well. So it's going to be interesting to see the philosophical approach of the Vikings on who can be that yak guy for them, or do you maybe ditch that type of style in their offense for maybe something else or maybe more of a vertical presence or maybe more of a spread look and a quick game offense uh, to appease, you know, what Justin Jefferson did down at LSU. And the thing at being six, three longer torso, that means you have a bigger strike zone for corners and you really saw that at LSU. He, Justin Jefferson struggled to get off press at times. You have that bigger frame. You're a little bit more upright. You're not as lateral. You're not as quick and shifty left and right like the smaller digs. He could struggle in his first two years against some NFL press type corner. So I think Stefan Diggs, the ability to, you know, create for himself is just so much greater. The other thing, Stefan Diggs, he was only in the slot about 25% the last two years. Justin Jefferson was in the slot about 94% last year. So he's going to have to get used to winning outside the numbers on the Vikings offense as well. When you have only two receivers on the field, hey, listen, they're either going to be in a twin set or they're going to be split formation, one on one side, one on the other side. That means you have to win against the outside corners, outside the numbers. And that's something he really wasn't asked to do at LSU. So there's going to be a lot of different things that Justin Jefferson's either going to have to get better at, learn to do, or change the Vikings offense. But I think it's going to be a little bit of a different presence on the outside this year. All right, now let me have you put your Mike Pettin hat on for a second, knowing that we're likely going to get a large dose of Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson this coming weekend. Are you going uh, Jair and King on specific wide receivers? Or are you just letting them each play their side? Um, what's your kind of preferred matchup for the, the Packers corners against Thielen and Jefferson? What I would really like, which Mike Pettin doesn't traditionally do, would be the Bill Belichick style of yeah. scheming. I would love to put our number one corner, Jair Alexander, on their number two receiver. That would be Justin Jefferson. What do you do with their number one? You double them. You double Adam Thielen. 
So you're putting your strongest corner on their lesser receiver and then designating more resources to their number one. I think that would be the best case scenario, especially the style of Jair Alexander being feisty, being competitive, being tough, press corner. I think he could really disrupt a Justin Jefferson. I don't know if that's what Mike Pettin's going to do. I think they're probably going to stick with kind of a more basic approach and kind of split the corners rather than traveling somebody. I'm not sure Thielen or Jefferson is really going to warrant any sort of traveling matchups. I would agree. I would expect it to be Jair playing his side, King playing his side. And if anyone's in the slot, it'll be Shannon Sullivan's uh, job to take. But it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Speaking of corners, I think that's the other really interesting aspect of this this Vikings roster. Um, you know, I, we probably should talk about them getting Yannick Ngakwe as well. But uh, Mike Hughes, Holton Hill, Jeff Gladney, Cameron Dantzler, Harrison Handon, Chris Boyd are the current six corners on the Vikings roster. That's a heck of a lot different than it's been over the course of the last couple seasons. Mike Hughes and Holton Hill seem like they're going to move into a little bit more prominent roles, but Jeff Gladney and Cam Dantzler as the rookies, I expect I would expect both of those guys to see the field quite a bit as well. What are you expecting out of this Vikings secondary? Yeah, really quick, just Yannick and Dockway. What are we going to get different from Everson Griffin? Just my quick elevator speech. Yannick and Dockway is a runaround defensive end. He has a great twitch. He has really good speed, good first step, good hand usage, but he's not going through many offensive tackles. He's a guy that's a little lighter. He's more in that 255 range, while Everson Griffin was about 275, 280, more of a half-man power rusher. What that means is you want to get on a half-man and try to power through an offensive tackle with your strength. Everson Griffin really wasn't looking to run around anybody. Now, the issue with Yannick Ndokwe and having that short area quickness and being a runaround defensive end, that plays right into David Bakhtiari's game because he wants to match you with speed. He can mirror you, and he can run the arc with you on speed. Occasionally, David Bakhtiari struggles with the power guys, yep. the guys that can go right through them and maybe bull them back into the quarterback. But I think Yannick's just a little twitchier, a little bit more nimble, a little bit more active with his hands. A uh, really exciting young player. I'm really anxious to see how he's going to look in that defense. But the DBs dedicate a lot of resources, first-round pick, third-round pick, fifth-round pick. They're definitely going to be in conversation to be starters and major contributors. Jeff Gladney at a TCU. All intents and purposes, very similar to Jair Alexander. Small, undersized, speedy, and so feisty, physical, absolutely pestering receivers out there he's mixed it up with tons of receivers some post-play fights very scrappy just for an all-encompassing kind of package view for fans and Jair Alexander is a lot like Jeff Gladney Cameron Dantzler long tall glass of water at 6'2 180 speedy he gave Jamar Chase at LSU probably the most trouble last year and Jamar Chase had arguably the best receiver season ever in college football and then Harrison Hand I don't remember if he was from Baylor or Temple or Temple than Baylor, but one of those guys that hop schools out there. He's more of a thicker corner, probably going to convert to safety. But just collectively, a really interesting group, and we're moving on from two former first-round picks and Xavier Rhodes and Trey Waynes that held down those corner spots for the last four or five years. So a bit of a changing of the guard. Mike Hughes, they dedicated a first-round resource two years ago. But that's a lot of resources this past draft. So uh, I think Mike Zimmer was kind of fed up with his corners and needed some new blood and uh, really wanted to change the, uh, the kind of style and the makeup of that cornerback room. Yeah, Jeff Gladney was one of my favorite players in this past year's draft. And we talked a little bit about inside linebacker and some of the things that you and I look for uh, the last time we spoke at corner. I just love looking at corners who basically look like they were born to play the position. And just like Jair, I feel like Gladney really hit that to a T. Like you said, the scrappiness, the not getting too freaked out if he gets burned for a play, being able to come back and fight through the next play. Um, you know, both of them are willing to help out in the run game, but they could probably both get a little bit better, but neither of them are going to necessarily shy away from it. I really like that pick for Minnesota. I'm not super happy that he's in the NFC North, but I am excited to see what he's going to be able to bring to their defense. Yeah, absolutely. And the one big loss that fans need to understand they moved on from Linval Joseph, the big run-plugging nose tackle, and they spent big money on Michael Pierce coming over from the Baltimore Ravens. Really nice, exciting young player. However, he opted out for COVID. So they dedicated some resources on replacing that run-plugging nose tackle, but he's not going to be here in 2020. So they are a little bit behind the eight ball as far as uh, their trench players and stopping the run. 
All right, let's do some lightning round before we get out of here. Uh, first of all, what are some of the week one games that you are most excited for? Well, I think first and foremost, you got to look at that Texans Chiefs game. A whole lot of money to Mr. Uh, Mahomes and Sean Watson this offseason, the playoff rematch and that huge comeback, uh, the uh, Super Bowl winning Chiefs. And I got that game circled first and foremost outside of the NFC North matchups. All right. I had, I had three on my list, although I am excited about the Texans and Chiefs as well. I just feel like the Chiefs are going to win that. I don't know why, but uh, we'll see. But I'm excited for Browns Ravens. I'm, I'm really interested to see if Baker can have a little bit of a bounce back, um, you know, with a new head coach, new system, see if he can kind of do a little bit better this year than he did a season ago. And then that Ravens team is just so much fun to watch. I think the Ravens will pull that off, but I am intrigued to see that matchup. I think Titans Broncos is a little bit of a, a sleeper kind of matchup as well. Titans, of course, had the nice run in the playoffs a season ago, but really excited to see kind of that young core of the Broncos. That game is in Denver. I know it'll be interesting to see how much home field advantage is actually a factor this season in some of these stadiums that maybe don't have as many fans. But that, that's one I'm looking forward to. And then, you know, how can you not have some level of excitement for Brady and Breeze going up against each other in saints Bucks? So those were the kind of the three on my radar. You know, I saw saints Bucks. I didn't even fully register that's Brady and Breeze. <laughs> I'm not fully there, the Tom Brady error yet down there in Tampa Bay. It's tough to get used to. I don't, I don't think there's uh, any penalty in that. All right, then let's go through some, just uh, some easy predictions for the season. Uh, first of all, week one, of course, uh, we got to say, you know, who's, who's your pick to win Packers Vikings week one? Packers Vikings. I think the Packers are going to win fairly handily. I'm going to go 31 17. Oh, I didn't have a score lined up, but I like that score line. I have the Packers as well. Um, I think the Vikings are going to take some adjusting too, uh, with kind of this, you know, so the, the new receiver on offense and Justin Jefferson, uh, some of the defenders gone both along the defensive line. I just think that team's going to take a little bit to gel. I think the Packers playing 18 games together a season ago is going to be an advantage there. There's so a lot like of that. new parts out there. As much as the core stayed the same, a Kirk Cousins, Cook, Thielen, the linebacking core, yeah. you know, the safeties are the same. It's a lot of different things going on with the perimeter, the corners, the receivers, and then the way the Packers ran on that team last year and the fact they don't have Linval and they don't have their big money free agent. I'm expecting them to hand the ball off to Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon and whoever else wants to line up back there and run for, uh, you know, two, 250 on them. Not to mention that Z and Preston and Kenny just absolutely demolished their offensive line uh, <laughs> last year in week 16 as well. All right, next up, uh, Packers record this season. Packers record this season. I'm going to go 10 and six and that clinches a wild card. You have, uh, you're reading my notes. I think I had 10 and six as well. Uh, I think you're right. And of course now with uh, an extra wild card team getting in, that helps their chances as well. Uh, so I think that uh, 10 and six, 11 and five right around there. I think they're going to have a little bit more adversity this year than they did a season ago. They had almost none last season, never losing back-to-back -back games. I think their first eight games could be like a four and four uh, before they close out with like a six and two type run. But uh, we'll see. I, I do think they're going to end up with a winning record and another playoff berth. And then last but not least, your Super Bowl prediction. Oof, Super Bowl prediction. That's a great question. I can go first if you need to, if you need some time. Yeah, you go team. ahead. You go first. All right, I'll go first. I'm I'm going Chiefs over Seahawks. I think we're gonna get. I know it's really cliche just to pick the Chiefs again and uh, pick chalk, but it's not like teams have actually you know actually gone back to back uh, recent years. So I'm picking Chiefs again. I think that offense is is just insanely dangerous, and I think that quarterback with that coach is it just has the ability to put a significant run together. I think we could see a really really fun Patrick Mahomes Russell Wilson Super Bowl matchup. I think we're going to have a matchup of two veteran quarterbacks in new homes. And that means it's going to be the Phillip Rivers Indianapolis Colts Ooh. against Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the 2020 Super Bowl played in the early February 2021. Yeah, that would be a really fun matchup. And I'm really interested to see what both of those quarterbacks are going to do. Kind of and on really the last quick, thing. Andy, I have a theoretical three for you. If I can right, perfect. You I'm ready. Let's go. Questions. Let's go. Okay, really quick. Jay Sternberger, Josiah DeGuara, who comes out of 2020 with more receptions? I am going to go with Jay Sternberger, but I think that's a really, really close call because I think DeGuara and Tanyan look like they're going to get a good chunk of the playing time. And I didn't see much out of Sternberger, but who knows? And Matt LaFleur even made mention of this in the fact that, you know, once game plans get put together and you put, you know, players in specific spots to, to win you football games, a lot of that stuff can change. 
I still expect a pretty decent breakout for Jay Sternberger, even though I didn't see him much in camp. And I'm a little bit jaded um, from Dan Vitale a season ago. I know they're not the exact same players, and I know that DeGuara can, uh, you know, do a little bit more. But, you know, Vitale ended up, what, with like 120 snaps or something like that. And I think he's, you know, I think he's going to play a similar type of role, but being able to be used in a few different situations. Um, so I'm going to go Sternberger, but it would not surprise me if that ended up being DeGuara. Everybody on the offensive line is 110% health. Read, read me the starting offensive line left to right week one. What I would do or what I think they're going to do? Well, you could take it whatever direction you like. <laughs> All right. Um, everyone's 100% healthy. I think what they would do is go Bakhtiari, Jenkins, Lindsley, Taylor, Turner would be my guess is what they would do. And I think that's probably what I would do as well. Interesting. Okay. And last but not least, AJ Dillon over under 500 rushing yards on the season under. And the only reason I say that is because Jamal Williams has looked fantastic. And I am about the furthest away from a Jamal Williams guy. I think at some point, and we kind of going back to the wide receiver position, I just think at some point you have to have some sort of explosive ability to really warrant the ball being in your hands. I was one A on the list of, Hey, if something happens to Aaron Jones, you could be in some fairly significant trouble because of all he did a season ago. And now you're going from Jones to Jamal Williams, who just doesn't have that same level of explosion. Uh, I, I'm not saying that Jamal Williams is all of a sudden going to tear it up, but he looks like a much better receiver. He looks more spry. He looks more explosive. I saw a play in camp where he had a, a kind of an, a, 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 I hesitate, hesitate to even say this for Jamal Williams, but an explosive run up the middle of the field. And I did a triple take because I, I didn't necessarily think that Jamal Williams was capable of that. He looks much, much better. And I think he's doing everything in his power to hold off AJ Dillon. I do think Dillon's going to get snaps and especially potentially late in games, but uh, I think Jones and, and Williams are still going to be your one and two. You almost forget some of those big plays by Williams. He had the screen touchdown, I think, against the Chargers or whoever it was. Or Oh, no, I think that was the uh, – yeah, he caught the one against the Chiefs in the back of the end zone. There was some pony personnel screen where they ran almost back-to-back plays with Aaron Jones kind of leaking to the left, and then they dumped the screen off back to the right. Um, but I'm glad I did this because all three of those questions, I'm not going to lie, three different answers than what I anticipated. So you expected DeGuara, different offensive line, and uh, I already forgot the last question. I thought you were going to say Dylan over. I thought yeah. you were going to say DeGuara beating Sternberger, and I thought you were going to squeeze in as uh, much of the intact offensive line as possible. So that would have been Turner at right guard and then going with just the Rick Wagner change at right tackle. Uh, but I'm really glad I asked that. Yeah, so I'll say this about the offensive line. Uh, Lane Taylor has looked really, really good. He looks like he, he's better at right guard uh, than he, he than he played at left guard. I also was higher, I think, a little bit higher on Lane Taylor than uh, most people were prior to last year. Last year, I thought he started off struggling and uh, even prior to the injury. But the two years prior, I thought he was a pretty solid left guard. Um, but he's like, I just don't know how you keep him off the field. I think he's your fourth best offensive lineman at this point. So I think he's been a stud since they replaced sitting on the drop of a dime before the season. He's been great, but he hasn't played right guard in a regular season game. I think since week 13, 2015. Yeah. He made mention of that. He said that I, I forget if it was in college or in high school that he originally played right guard and that he actually feels most natural playing right guard. Um, And he looks that way. Um, So I'm excited about him. I I think you, I I would have to pencil him in at right guard at this point. Um, And then uh, the right tackle is really interesting. I, I, my, one of my bold predictions for the season is that Rick Wagner would be the starter at right tackle for 16 games. And that conversation between, between Turner and Wagner wasn't even really going to be a conversation. Um, I'm scared to death about Turner's foot speed on the outside, especially against a guy like Yannick. I think that could be a really big struggle. When I went back and watched Billy Turner's tape from his last year with the Broncos before he signed, I went through and watched every snap. I thought he looked solid at guard in Denver. They played him at tackle. He was okay, but he had a, a couple games that really tanked his overall grade. One of those was against D Ford, who just completely ate his lunch that entire game. Uh, he ended up with a just a brutal score. And, yeah, they couldn't uh, get off the ball for some reason. D Ford yeah, no, was for flying sure. up the field. And yeah, so you, you talk about a player like Yannick who has that first step quickness, kind of that runaround guy, D Ford, something similar. So uh, I have my concerns about Billy Turner and I never wanted that to be even in the conversation, but um, just based on what I've seen, I, I think that could be the case. And I'm not sold at this point that he's not better than, than Rick Wagner at that right tackle position, especially with the bum arm that he's got right now. Yeah, that's all pretty fair, Andy.
All right. Any other final thoughts today, Ben? No, I think we covered a lot. I'm really excited to uh, get some new tape uh, this weekend coming up. We'll finally have some fresh tape to watch to, after having a complete August with no fresh preseason tape or anything new to watch. So I'm just excited to have some some fresh All-22 after this weekend. Yeah, I'm right there with you, although I will say I, I'm nervous because I know you always uh, have access to the tape like immediately as soon as it comes out. Last year, they did a weird thing where like they did not make it available in week one after week one until like Wednesday or something, which really made deadlines really, really tight for me. But I'm hoping that it comes out a little bit sooner and I'm hoping by Monday night, I'm going to be able to, to throw it on and, and start enjoying that and hopefully coming off a win, which always makes it a little bit more fun and a little bit easier to do. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I can't wait. I can't believe that, uh, you know what, as people are listening to this on Monday, in three days, we're going to have uh, NFL football back, college football's uh, at least somewhat back in the swing of things. You and I are going to be doing all 22 breakdowns. This is, uh, this is what we love to do. It's, it's finally back in tow. I can't freaking wait. Uh, thanks so much today for everything, Ben. This is fantastic. As always, I will talk to you in two weeks, hopefully after the Packers are 2-0. and uh, But until next time, and as always, go Pack Go! Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.